Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning again thanking you so much for all that you give to us. God, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be solely centered upon your word and to flesh it out in loving grace and ministry to those you call to our lives that we touch. I ask this in thy name. Amen. On Friday, I, for those of you who weren't here, reminded you that some of the things that you're going to be seeing that are projected here are simple. They will weave along some of the moments that we spend together. Steve, I appreciate you calling me a pastor, but I, 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 I count that a high privilege. I have count that probably one of the highest callings in life to be that. Don't mean to disclaim that, but I've never been a pastor. Some of you knew for 20 years I spent in broadcast work and, and uh, doing those kinds of things, and then became called into emergency service chaplaincy as a lay pastor or a lay minister. These things that you're going to see throughout the rest of this morning are things that come out of that life, and many of them are heavy. And they're heavy because that's where some of us have lived, or some of the things God has called us through. The first time, or one of the first times that I ever remember being confronted with an event of crisis or something happened that, that was heavy and that changed my life was back in 1968. And I want to review back there for just one more moment to take you back to Friday when we talked about this in particular. And I think you'll remember some of that scene. This was in Los Angeles in the Ambassador Hotel. And that young man, handsome young man above Ethel Kennedy there, was before I put on a couple of pounds and put glasses and got old. But I'll never forget standing there on that occasion because as I traveled as a young reporter with this Kennedy family, I realized the arrogance and the pride of life and how, how height and pride can take a life to a new height and then in the moments that followed after that, see it all shattered. It's much like our life. It's much like the lives that you've experienced, perhaps. All of a sudden, all is going well, and then everything falls apart. The thing that I didn't mention to you on Friday when I showed you more of the clips that were associated with this particular event was this, is after he had turned and gone to the kitchen, and I showed you Friday some of what happened after that, but after he had turned, I was standing just about right here, and Ethel and Mr. Kennedy, and when he left the podium, I was somehow out of, I didn't know where my notes were or the... I needed note paper. So I just leaned over and grabbed from the podium a piece of yellow legal tab. And I wish I'd brought it with me this morning. But on that legal tab, at the time, it was nothing more than, than just his scribbled notes. And they didn't mean much, and I stuffed it in my pocket. And several days later, after Mr. Kennedy died, I pulled from that and I realized what I had in my pocket. That this was the last living testament of this man who the world knew, as many thought, would be the next president. And I looked on that note, and I looked at all that it said, and, and, and all of his appreciations, his credits, his thanks to all of the people that had helped him 
Rayford Johnson and Don Drysdale and a bunch of other names that were on that list. And I got thinking, and I was thinking about this again on Friday, and I didn't mention it to you, but what I got thinking about was if he had known, if he had some glimpse that just moments from that point that that picture was taken, that his life would end, would that which appeared on that paper would be a testament that he would want to leave? Did any of you do your homework <laughs> from Friday? How many of you did your homework? Oh, I'm impressed. I'm sure glad you're glad the lights are out, aren't you? <laughs> I kind of thought maybe some of you wouldn't do, do it. Um, it's been a busy week, and I know you had a heavy weekend. But what I asked you to do was simple. I'm going to have all of you do it right now for just a moment. Uh, the lights are out, so I guess I can't have you take out a piece of paper, so that's probably better. But mentally, do this with me, would you? I want you to pick a typical day in your life. It could be today. It could be yesterday. Some day that you think is typical. And I want you to walk through it mentally. If I could have you write it down, I'd like to have you do that to save it. But I'd like you to take this. Let's just take a day. You pick the day. And think with me. Close your eyes. Whatever you need to do. I want you to identify the major things that you do in a life, in your life, on that typical day of yours. Okay? Let's begin. Let's begin. Let's just take a, a day about 6 o'clock in the morning. And what do you do between, say, 6 and 9? Give me, just, just think through and identify the main things that are part of your life that you count significant at that time. Take the time from nine till noon, nine through lunch, what you usually, what a typical day would be. Now take from noon from the afternoon, from noon until through supper. And now, and I wish we had more time for this because I think it'll be, you, you, you remember in the, on Friday in the beginning, and you'll be glad, uh, Kelly, you'll be glad to have somebody come back tomorrow who's got three points to a message because they always, we reminded folks on Friday that all good preachers have good three points. And if you can find three points in today or Friday, you're doing well. There aren't any particularly, but you will be giving me three points at the end of this morning. All right, from supper time till the time you retire for the evening till you go to bed. What involves your day? Think through and identify those key things. Okay? I wish I could keep them there, but you'll have to set them aside for a few moments. The other question I asked on Friday was kind of a penetrating one because we'd gone through some heavy things. Uh, some of you had seen some pretty heavy things that you hadn't seen before. Uh, you know what would be helpful, a friend, whoever's on the lights? Would you just give me the last bank? I know it may take a, a little time to crank up, but uh, maybe let's just leave the last bank on for the rest of the, the morning. And a couple things I may want to do a little later, and I appreciate that. Thanks. The other question that I asked you after seeing some of these tapes was, you have a reputation, and it may or may not be what you think it is. 
Do you realize that? It may be a reputation that you may not know anything about. But my question is, that I asked some to think about over the weekend, is when it is all said and done, when it is all finished, when your life is over, for what would you want to be remembered? Think about that for the remaining moments this morning. I used to ask that in the old broadcast years. I remember, I suppose all of the entertainers and pastors, everybody who came across our interview desk got asked that question. I guess the one that I remember the most that stood out the most was a lady by the name of Corrie Ten Boone, who's now gone, but uh, she said, you know, Mr. Gatiss, I, I don't even want to be remembered at all. I hope the only uh, thing you remember about my life is you remember my Lord and Savior. Very penetrating. But think about those couple of things. Then we'll be back to them. On Friday, I profiled a little bit about a life that began not having any direction, uh, a life that began my own assuming at some point that broadcast would be a part of that world, being involved with it in, in the news capacity, attending a variety of events, the last execution in the state of uh, San Quentin in, in the California penitentiary, and going to I, countless air disasters and events of crisis, all of a sudden, at one point, changed my life when I moved to Seattle out of Los Angeles a number of years ago and was asked to be a chaplain of the fire department. And today, that simple question and acceptance of that chaplain responsibility came because of some of the events that I'd experienced as a young boy. The event I didn't tell you about was Friday when we were talking about some of those things, as the other day, Tim and I, and uh, most every time we're down here, we go over to Forest Lawn in Glendale, and there's a little marker in the grave that simply says, Karen Lee Gatiss, in Christ she lives. And I'll never forget that day, carrying that little tiny casket and laying that little casket in the ground. And I always wonder, she'd be 23 now, I wonder what she'd like. And I know someday we'll see her, and Tim and... Brothers and sisters will have a chance to know Karen a little bit, but someday that'll happen. Some of you folks have never had the opportunity or the experience ever to know a crisis or to lose yet a loved one in death. And I'm going to not embarrass any of you, but I think a lot of you have been through some of these things before. How many of you have seen already death come to a parent, a sister, a brother, uh, someone in your immediate family. Can I see your hand? Hold it up for just a moment. You see, you know what it's like in many ways to all of a sudden come face to face with something that's probably the heaviest of your moment. Judy, you and I met just a short... I, we just were talking before uh, this morning. Come here a second, hon. Judy, you... Um, People know you, and they know all about you, and they know a little bit about why you're here. Maybe some of them do. But you and I just got talking, and you told me that your dad was a chaplain, a police chaplain in the East Coast. And he became a police chaplain because, and that's good, and that's a part of ministry, but he became one in many ways because of something else that it was experienced in your life years <coughs> earlier, because your brother was a police officer. He was 26. Mm -hmm. And what happened to him at age 26? 
Um, he responded to a call with a couple of buddies, unexpected, um, was ambushed and shot and killed in the line of duty. Yeah. You see, sometimes, Judy, don't we all go through life thinking that, that we've got every day, that all of a sudden we're going to have this whole day ahead of us, and then something happens suddenly and it's all over in some ways. What was the toughest thing for your family? I haven't asked you about these things. <laughs> you mean the toughest? Toughest day? at the time and maybe even what you've learned from it since then. Oh, well, my dad was um, in ministry for all of our growing up years, so it was really hard to see him uh, respond. He pretty much fell apart for yeah. about a year and a half, and that really shook my, my foundation. And... Um, faith in God and, and all of that and and just the whole why do these things happen and yeah. understanding that God is a good God. I didn't understand a lot of that at the mm -hmm. time. Um, Judy, I wish we had I wish we had a whole time for just you today because I think there's underneath there your family's experiencing things I like to pull out. So maybe some other time we can do that. Mm -hmm. But thanks Judy. I really mean that. Judy is um, a gal that we find in like her in so many places that all of a sudden the world has come to an end. I want you to listen to a tape this morning that was on a call that we became involved with. A young babysitter, she was maybe like you, caring for a, another little child, and all of a sudden she didn't pay attention to that little gal, and all of a sudden something happened. And she did like a lot of folks do when something happens suddenly. She called for help. You can read news headlines. You can see stories in, on television. But until you have been there or experienced like Judy and her family and some of you others, you don't know what it's like. Now, the purpose for this, Mark introduced this time together as missions. The heart of International Chaplains Ministry, which I represent, is to care for families during sudden events of crisis. You see, most of us, when we think of missions, would probably not really realize that most folks out in the street would come into your church. Most folks would not come and join the church. In turn, we have to find creative ways, meaningful ways, to take the principles of Scripture into the heartland, into their lives, at a time when the need is there. Listen to this young lady as she calls for help on this particular occasion. All of a sudden, this young child, she discovers unresponsive in a bathtub. This young child is in her care. And now she's calling for help. When things suddenly happen, one time all is going well, like Robert Kennedy in the assassination. We're on the top of the world, and all of a sudden things change.
This is a profile of a young child, a young babysitter. But I think it relates to life, too. It relates to life because inside of all of us, many times, before Christ comes into that life, is a dying soul, a desperately lost and dying soul. And it's almost intended to be like this, I think, in the day when a world recognizes there's no Savior. And this youngster, this baby, this infant did not survive efforts by our crews. And all of our care and our life went to her family and all of the guilt and all of the things that a young babysitter had to contend with. A few miles from here up on a highway, not too long ago, was another event. We experienced those types of consequences. And this happened to be one where a young man on a motorcycle knew he was going too fast, knew he was going around the corner significantly too fast, and all of a sudden we're called to the scene. And his family is there, those he was riding with was there, and all of a sudden we have a situation that we call a medical emergency. And this young man took that bike and put it around the corner, young man took it into a rock, and our medic crews are trying, with the California Department of Forestry, trying to save a young man's life. Around him you see standing his friends, those who again woke up this morning thinking that all is going to go well, and all of a sudden things change. And life suddenly comes to an end, and this young man, like that young girl before, does not survive. And though all of our efforts, our medical efforts, are extended to air with every knowledge we have, sometimes we just can't do it. We just can't help. If you could be to those scenes and at those places, I think all of a sudden, though Ecclesiastes talks about the good times and the times we enjoy the homecomings and the time we enjoy all of these other events, sometimes it changes. And the consequences of life and actions become very real. I want to set up this next uh, little clip for you because it's probably one of the most saddest that I've ever experienced or had a part of. And I want to go through this quickly to just get us to that place because of time. We talk here at Master's College about being faithful to the Word. We talk about being faithful in the Word, of understanding it and having a part in it. I want to show you for just a few moments what happens when someone departs from the solid grounding of the Word. On Friday, I reminded, I think, each of us that we use that expression out of Boeing, that if someone had given me a Boeing airplane, what would I do with it? How would I care for it? 
I'd have to know how to fuel it and take care of it. What's the same with our own lives? This young man and his girlfriend, this is a true story, you'll see it exactly as it happened, was a young man in Arkansas a short while ago that got involved with a cult. He had been raised in a solid Christian home, began to experiment with a lot of things that weren't necessarily solid. He did something strange. He hijacked with hostages aboard a trailways bus. His objective was to get the message across, get his message across about his brand of lordship. And here on this bus, in this highway, with our FBI agents and our local sheriff there trying to negotiate, he attempted to explain and asked for a news camera to come out and tape him and interview him. And that was his bargaining process. We used this sometimes at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, to discuss hostage taking and caring for things. This is the local sheriff negotiating with this man. To get the hostages. And this is an actual very heavy, heavy scene. This trailways bus is parked on a bridge. Sharpshooters and SWAT team folks are gathered around it. The local sheriff here has encouraged one of the local TV guys to come aboard. And you did a story on him previously, but it didn't go nationwide. This is And here's his bargaining. And these, of course, are the hostages. It's a shame that it had to come to this, but uh, we tried every effort that we knew to get it nationwide, our message across, and uh, it just couldn't be done. Why did you have to take hostages to do this? Well, we are the two witnesses as spoken of in the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation. And, uh, of course, there's 1,260 days that are allotted to these two witnesses to go about prophesying in sackcloth. And sackcloth, of course, is symbolic for covering. In other words... Now, I want to pause this for just a moment. The reality of this is that he hijacks this bus because he wants the world to know this message. You've heard of Dr. Kevorkian. This man is intent on the same type of ending of his life. Within five minutes of the time we're watching this scene, this young man and his girlfriend will die. They will kill each other. I'm not going to take it that far for you. But that's the ending scenario, is that because of his drift from orthodoxy, from solid biblical teaching, his drift took us to this place where his whole message and message in life is to get on television to let the world know that he is intending to rise again. That's what he wants to do. So he's talking about all this. He's got the local television guy there, and that's what he's setting it up for. But recognize, I'm not going to carry it that far this morning, but recognize that he will take it and eventually come out of that bus and force the SWAT team to shoot him in the shoulder. They do that, but they have handguns themselves, and each one takes the other's life. All so that they can show their message and their brand of what they consider Christianity. 
Listen to him as he just explains where he's at. To tell the people that the Messiah is here, you know, because it just wouldn't be, uh, the world would turn over immediately once they learn of it about a month later. Uh, the world would just completely change. So we were in sackcloth. All right, now 1260 days is what we're allotted, and this is the time of when it had to take place. This is the day, this is the 1260th day. What specifically are you wanting us to do? Well, I want you to put this nationwide that the long way the Messiah is here. Now, the proof that's going to follow is that whenever you walk out here and your cameras are going to be on us, we're going to let the hostages go, we're going to step outside, and uh, we're going to be shot to death by the police officers. What's that going to prove? Well, three and a half days later, we've already had written I mean, consent from my father to have our bodies placed on his land for three and a half days. And after this three-and-a-half-day period, the spirit of life from God enters into them, and they stand upon their feet. And in the same hour, there's a great earthquake in the tenth part of the city called. It's all in the book of Revelation. Isn't there a better way to get your message across than doing something like this? Seriously, Jim, we tried everything that we knew. We tried everything. We went out to California. We invested $8,000 in it. Uh, you know, of our money that we worked hard to get to, to get the message across. My dad, he's put out, I don't know how many thousands of dollars in pamphlets, and, and of course, he got the story you know, local from you people, and we had a story to on us local up in Fort Smith. But whenever we went to, like, real people in the NBC studios out in Los Angeles, California, they politely gapped us off, if you know what I mean. So then that, all of those things not happening is what made this possible. Now, what, what do you want, want us to do now? Well, I, what you have here is I want you to put this over the news nationwide. And whenever three and a half days comes, I want you guys to be here for the resurrection. Why is it necessary to be shot to do something like this? Well, you've got to be dead. You know, see, we've conquered the world within us. We're conquering the world now on the outside of us. Now all we have left to conquer is death. What do you want? Now, you mentioned now you've let seven people go. Now, what, what do we have to do to make you let the rest of them go? Oh, you guys just put this on the air. You guys put us on the air, I'm going to let these guys go, and they're going to go out there. The second demand was that our bodies not be tampered with, you know, not put into the ground for three and a half days. And, of course, we have a place where our bodies can lay, which is on my dad's land, out here outside of Jasper. Of course, all the multitudes that want to come and witness this without the use of the media camera can do so by just coming to Jasper, Arkansas, asking where food is, coming out to the land, and then they can see it for themselves in their own sight. How many followers do you have that believe in what you're doing? Countless. Countless. For three and a half years now, we've been going around, like I said, in sackcloth and covering, talking to people all over the country. And, of course, we had food day this past May 7th where uh, we had a turnout of about 500 people, which is small compared to what I expect will turn out for this. And, yeah. The message is that the Father's name has been given through the long way of Messiah that all men are commanded to say, who is here? In recognition of the Father that lives within, food standing for the Father of us. And who is the Messiah? Emily Mayer Lamb. At the same time, we are all the Messiah. That is the important thing. The people right. talking about Jesus, all the Christians, they're waiting for the second coming. Yeah. The Father is alive. The Spirit of Christ is the breath that we breathe. It is living within us now. Right. There is no reason to wait for anything to come. It's just so ridiculous that people can't fathom the miracle alone in their lives. They got to be shown. That's the reason for this, because mankind cannot see the miracle of like the sun coming up every morning, the butterflies, the bees, the breeze blowing in the trees and all of this. So there has to be something that he's not accustomed to. 
if you could be with us as police officers, as firefighters, as agents of federal agencies, and come in contact with a people like this and go on the scores and the countless events of crisis that suddenly come into somebody's life in our hometown, in the hours before I came here, a young man decided his life was not worth living and ended it. Two other young children died in a fire, in a house fire. A father was drowned in a, in a, in a diving incident. All of these events, I had to go to the families and tell them that their, their, their kids, their loved ones, weren't coming home and begin to work with them. As a chaplain in police and fire service agencies, we see this routinely all the time. And I realize that it's very easy for all of us in certain places to think that we've got forever. Did I do that? I'm sorry. Thank you. To see this, to see these events take place daily changes your life. What are they? What's most important to you? I was asked by a young reporter of a little high school newspaper not too long ago, Mr. Gatiss, if you had one hour to live, what would you do in that one hour? And I thought, and I told her some things that I thought sounded good, they looked good when they were in print, about all the things that I would have done in that hour, and then I was bothered by it, because what really I thought it was all about afterwards is that if I had that hour, if I indeed had that hour, I shouldn't have to do anything, that my life should be so in order that all those things that I would have said I would have done wouldn't have had to been done at all. But my question as we tie things together this morning, and I don't, I, I, Friday we ended on a great crazy note, can't do that this morning because I don't know that we'll ever be together like this again. I know that. Never again on the face of this earth will this group ever be together just like this. Because I know that somewhere along the line within this next year, I know that, that one of us will not be here if we did have a reunion of this gathering. My question to you, what are the three most important things in your life right now? Would, would God be one? Maybe? Relationship with Christ? Would study of the, study of the Word be one? Really? What would you say? What are those three? Can you think of three? All right. Now let me let me just last question on your end. If those are really your three, and it's all based on this fact that I'll leave here in a few moments, and we'll have lunch with Tim, and then I'm out to Palm Springs, and we're teaching some pastors out there to help families that suddenly the fire departments can't handle them. All of a sudden somebody dials 911 and we place somebody in their life to help care for these families emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Right after one of our sessions out there, the last time there was a school bus that was coming down from the tram. It lost its brakes and a bunch of Girl Scouts on board and a number died and all of a sudden the whole focus was on that. These girls were out for a great time, a great day. The thing that I found in, in probably telling an average of 10 to 12 families a week that someone isn't coming home, that someone has died, is it is not the death 
that sometimes is the heavy thing, but it is rather what I would call the if-onlys, the things that were left undone, unsaid. If only I could have or should have or didn't do or whatever. Now the last question, that test. Those three things, you got them in mind? Stand up, please. Think of those three things. Now, if all of a sudden this was the day that God would call you to Him, trust you'd be ready. But yet, for what would you want to be remembered, really? And secondly, the test about whether how honest you are about those three things you just said. If indeed that is important, name them, say them now to yourself. Don't, don't include family. I mean, include family in one if that's there. Don't count, uh, you know, mom, dad, and sister. That takes three and you cheat. That's not the way. It... Take the three things, say them to yourself right now, okay? Now, the test of that as we leave is simple. In the beginning of our time together today, I asked you to list everything you did in your typical day and what you do. Okay? You listed it. You went through the list. You went through it right from the time you got up to the time you went to bed. Now, my question is simply back to you. How much time did you invest in those three during the course of your typical day? And I can tell you very, very, very candidly how successful or not successful you will be. Many times, just lip service. Many times, just I'm saying it. But do you really believe it? And if you do, then that changes the order of your life. It changes the things that you do within the course of a day. And if you change it to the right, the consequences of those if-onlys at the end of that life, if it's a relationship with a family member or a parent, and it may be just going to the phone right after chapel today and say, Mom, I forgot to tell you, gee, thanks for everything you've done, or Dad, or... Um, you don't know, because I have, as I said Friday, I have been in more sessions like this where I've seen a door open in the corner, and I'm standing here, and I've seen the door open, and someone kind of slips a, new, a little slip of paper up here, and we call someone to a telephone, and they go to that telephone, and they hear that someone in their it's all finished. No opportunity to do it. Young folks, old folks, all of us together, we don't know that time that is ours. But we use it well. Friday, we reminded you, I've heard so many people say, when they go in the ministry, they're going to do this, this, and this. Folks, you're in the ministry now. It's not going to get any better. This may be the only day that some of you have to be in the ministry. The young man with cancer that I illustrated on Friday, friend of mine. What's the difference between the time now in knowing you have cancer and the time you before? And he simply said this. He said, I used to always think I'm thinking out there. When I get out there, next vacation, at the end of school, when I graduate, all of these kinds of things are going to be out there. Now I'm taking advantage of today because next to me right now is someone very precious to me. My roommate may be going through something that I've just been so much into myself, I've totally lost sight of these other folks and needs. Ministry isn't out there, friends. It's today, it's right here, it's right now. 
Father, we thank you for everything you give to us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lives of those who are committed to teach and preach and use their gifts and talent around this place. And Father, I pray that each person here who calls themselves a student would be just that. The measure would not be the grades. The measure would not be how successful I achieved something, but how I deeply ensconced these principles and truths from thy holy word into my heart of hearts to be able to flesh them out and to use my gift, maybe not as a chaplain, maybe not going to care for someone, but yet using gifts that only you have given to me personally, to each one here, for this, for this uh, enhancement of thy kingdom. Father, help us today as we go to be reminded of all of life. In the Savior's name we pray. Amen. Amen.